Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It's an honor for me to have as my guest today, uh, the retired professor of New Testament Greek and theology at my alma mater, Taylor University. He's also a husband, a father, a grandfather, a former campus missionary, uh, Dr. Bill Heth. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, so welcome. Love to be here. Bill, you talked a little bit before we started recording about your experience with uh, Campus Crusade, which is what they used to call it way back in the day. Talk yeah. about how, how you got involved and how that was a transformative experience for you. A team of weightlifters, the Athletes in Action, came through my high school my senior year, and, uh, but, and, I, and I prayed the prayer, but I never got the Bible, read it, or anything until two years later when I was in a fraternity, Eta Theta Phi at the University of Michigan. I ran track, and the pitcher of the Michigan baseball team invited me to a crew meeting. And when I heard people talking as if they knew God personally, uh, I knew I didn't know Christ like that. And so he invited me to their leadership training classes. The next week, it happened to be on the Holy Spirit. I didn't know the Holy Spirit was a person and the power source of the Christian life, and it all changed from there. Totally transformed my life. And, and after two years with them, didn't even pole vault my senior year because I spent 15 hours a week with crew. Uh, the ministry, and uh, then went on staff for four years right after uh, that, 74 to 78. Oh, my goodness. Well, I just I want to say thank you for that personal investment. My daughter is a sophomore at College of Creative Studies in Detroit, and crew has been a great lifeline for her. It's been a chance for her to live into her own faith and connect with other people who share uh, her passion for Christ in an environment that might not otherwise be that yes. way. Yes. Cool. So how did you how did you find your way into the academy? Like what was what was that yes. bridge between campus ministry and and you getting your doctorate? All right. Well, after four years, I had this desire to study further. I had a buddy who was able to read theology on his own and without submitting himself to the classroom. That wasn't me. I needed to submit myself to the classroom. So I headed down to Dallas Theological Seminary. It was really the the second year, end of the second year, beginning of third year there that they required in the fifth semester Greek class on 1 Corinthians, they had everybody do one of three papers. 1 Corinthians touches on all these topics, divorce and remarriage, speaking in tongues, and the role of women in the church. Oh, wow. I later became a grader for the New Testament department and probably graded 200 each of those topic papers over the next couple of years in the doctoral program. So when I did my divorce and remarriage, me, myself and one other guy came up with a pretty strict view. And one of the faculty agreed with us, a faculty member who later became the president of Wheaton College, Dwayne Litton. And I probably shouldn't have said that, but uh, uh, everybody else thought we were way off uh, base. And now I have since changed my view from that time. But I was surprised that evangelicals had missed so much of what was going on in the more critical studies uh, New Testament studies of, of Jesus of the Gospels, and I felt like I wanted to track this down. And why did we miss it? Why did evangelicals miss that Jesus seemed to teach uh, no remarriage after divorce? Now I'll come back to that because that's not the view I hold anymore. But that's what everybody outside of evangelical circles held in the more yeah. critical circles. So, so for our listeners who who might not be able to kind of quote chapter and verse, could you just give in broad strokes what what Matthew nineteen covers, and then talk yes. about why why that's a tricky passage and why it's yes. important for us to keep wrestling with it? Yeah, Matthew nineteen three through twelve. It's parallel to Mark ten um, two through twelve as well, and that's the passage that has that crazy 
exception clause, except for immorality. Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, uh, commits adultery. And Mark doesn't have that exception clause. Uh, Luke doesn't have anything like it. There's no hint of that exception clause in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, and 12 through 15. And so uh, what does that exception clause mean? So I went out and, and did my master's thesis, and I, I, I wrote this book with Warden Wenham, Overseas in English, Jesus and Divorce, and I cover six different interpretations of that exception clause. It's crazy. Now, I, I don't hold this view anymore, but I covered all of that material. And so what was problematic is where where did Jesus come out? Did he follow the, the liberal Hillelite view? Very loose. Uh, he essentially taught the view of Rabbi Shammai, but two or three exceptions. Yes, you can, you can divorce uh, and remarry for a serious sexual sin, but he doesn't command divorce. And the previous chapter in Matthew 18 says, you could forgive up to 70 times a seven. Mm. And so uh, he's always for maintaining the marriage, uh, maintaining marriages together, keeping marriages together. Jesus is. So it was that text. And then right after verse nine, Jesus's disciples in verse 10, after he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for immorality and marries another commits adultery, his disciples reacted like, are you kidding me? This is too strict. And uh, he goes on to mention the, the eunuch saying, two eunuchs that were well-known, eunuchs that were made eunuchs by men, eunuchs that were born that way. And then he invents the third category. Some made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And that's where singleness comes in. That's in the history of the church. That's the passage that the Catholic church, the early church fathers look to for a life of um, celibacy, a life of uh, singleness sold out in the last clause said on account of the kingdom that mm. people are so enamored with who Jesus is so in love with him so committed they don't have room in their life it's not a force thing it's a heart intimacy desire thing where somebody runs after the Lord and wants to and, and would see marriage is getting in the way of all that they want to do for the Lord I only have one student who's done that uh, one former student, he's with, with, with Bible translators in Indonesia right now. I've had other students come into my office saying they thought the Lord was calling them to a life of singleness. And uh, turned out, no, it was just a, a sorry date. <laughs> and uh, there's only one uh, over my 36 years that definitely was called to be a eunuch for the kingdom. Uh, single, to stay single because he didn't have room for the other aspects of life uh, to uh involved. Bill, talk a little bit about where, where you finally landed on that Matthew 19 passage. You don't have to you know, yeah. recap your whole journey, but tell us yeah. what, what you think now, because divorce and remarriage was something that I feel like was kind of a hot topic in church circles 15 or 20 years ago, but I just yeah. don't tend to hear people talking about it a lot anymore. Right, right. And that's when I, when I contributed to the Three Views book, I'm looking all over for it today. It's still uh, sold by Zondervan. Um, Mark Strauss is the editor. And um, in that book, that's where I publicly, you know, changed my view, came out. I did it before, a few years earlier in a Southern Baptist Journal of Theology article. But uh, here's, here's what happened. I realized I'd made uh, two mistakes. I followed um, the, a Catholic author who spoke of the indissolubility of marriage. And um, an individual named Gordon Hugenberger 
uh, wrote a book on Malachi II, the covenant of marriage. And on the third page, in a footnote, he mentioned that covenants could be broken. And I had a hot flash. And it was like, oh, my word. I thought marriage was <laughs> be funny. In, in the soluble. And the second thing that I missed was that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, when he talks about, he comes to Corinth, preaches the gospel. One of the spouses becomes a believer. The other's not. And in verse 15, he says uh, to, the, to, the, to the, the, the believer, when the brother or sister who is not a believer leaves, the brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called us to peace. All of a sudden, I realized Paul added another ground of divorce uh, to what Jesus did. Jesus had never had occasion to speak to mixed marriages. He was speaking to Jewish people, his disciples. So here's Paul adding another ground. So it couldn't only be uh, divorce and remarriage for a serious sexual sin. It had to also include uh, that abandonment aspect where somebody reneges on their volitional conditional covenant that they made at marriage and when those vows are are broken a person doesn't have to divorce you can keep trying to keep the marriage together but i think the person who is the innocent party who is experiencing pain all the time there's no uh both parties are involved somebody has to make I, I don't think a pastor can tell them you can't do this they have to be involved in the discussion and decide when is enough and uh, is enough unfaithfulness is going on. Yeah. 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 Bill, I love this. I love this framing of it. And it seems like, I, and we're, we're seeing this more too, maybe in the last five or six years, maybe in the mm -hmm. wake of the Me Too movement, where some people are coming forward and saying like, I appreciate my church's intent to commit to the sanctity of marriage and the, and to your, to your point that my perception of the dissolubility of marriage, but at the same time, it seems like this, this generation has more and more stories of maybe the church in an attempt to get it right, in fact, got it wrong from a pastoral perspective and maybe expected or forced people to stay in relationships that weren't spiritually, emotionally, or maybe even physically safe for them. What do you, hmm. what do you think is, has changed in recent years in maybe the church giving grace or nuance to the aspect of divorce and remarriage that previously maybe evangelicals weren't willing to do? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of it has to do with the role of the spirit in the community of the church uh, lining up the teaching of the church with biblical principles. So back in 1978 or so, Psychology Today ran an article um, and tried to compare um, physical abuse, wife beating, physical abuse to the effects of adultery on the impact of somebody's life. And they tried to, tried to sneak, but I think well-meaning, uh, physical abuse into reasons for divorce and remarriage. Well, people were so committed to, well, this is what Jesus said. You can't change that at all. And in my youthful days, uh, 40 some years ago, uh, that's kind of where I was. Yeah. And I was an idealist. And sure. um, when you see, I think they are becoming sensitive to the fact that uh, you can't base a whole theology of divorce and remarriage on one verse, one phrase, except for immorality in Matthew 19.9. It has to be the total biblical picture on that. Gotcha. And then yeah. let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the, the eunuchs again, because I've been really, really intrigued by this. It's, I don't hear a whole lot of churches speaking about singleness or celibacy as a gifting or as a calling. It seems like 
for better or for worse, we often get kind of sucked into this cultural narrative that says yeah. people can people are supposed to be partnered. They're supposed to be a prince charming and a and a mm-hmm. Cinderella. And there's if they follow Jesus, they'll yeah. fall in love and never to live happily ever after. It seems like the early church maybe did a better job of opening up singleness as an option to maybe our broader culture or evangelical church has done in recent history. What's what's your theory? Why do you think evangelicals yeah. have been so prone to maybe overlook or skip over that passage? Yeah, here's here's why. I went back, I hadn't read my um, 300 page doctoral dissertation for 40 years. So I read it yesterday and the day before. And uh, the first opening chapter uh, talks about that. And here's what it was. The reformers so overreacted to enforced Catholic clerical celibacy, enforcing the clergy to stay single, not to marry. They had good reasons. Paul said in, in the second half of First Corinthians 7, you want to concentrate your energies on building the church and advancing the kingdom. Didn't have time for marriage. And so they so overreacted to Catholic enforced clerical celibacy that we've now almost made marriage in the family uh, an an idol. Mm. And that we uh, sometimes parents may demand their kids who want to take their grandkids overseas into mission, say, no, stay here, Uh, stay near the grandparents. And we say, no, go into missions. So I used to say, hey, missionaries were the closest thing to what a a eunuch for the kingdom would be. They're an eschatological sign to hold on to the things of this world loosely. Exactly what Paul talks about in in verse uh, 27 through uh, 35 in 1 Corinthians 7. I now have replaced those uh, that paradigm with another paradigm who are now my models for holding on to the things of this world loosely. And the uh, celibate, same-sex attracted Christians, I've read about eight books on that topic. Best one is David Bennett's War of Loves. They have amazing chapters on celibacy that are developing this in ways that go beyond what I touched on in my doctoral dissertation. But we need to, as they argue, and I agree with them, we need to celebrate the person who says and considers carefully whether or not they want to remain single for the sake of serving the Lord. Doesn't mean they're going to do that all their life. I had a professor who was still dating an open marriage in his mid-60s at, at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he had remained single. John Stott remained single all his life. I guess Lottie Moon. Think of Jackie Pullinger uh, chasing the dragon over in Hong Kong's drug dens. Amazing uh, stories. But the new information and the best treatment of the single lifestyle and how to get the most out of it, always a struggle for sure, but filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, obedient to the Lord, falling in love with Jesus, an intimate relationship, something that I was not taught in my evangelical circle. I was taught obedience. I had to learn from my kids. I know it's about growing in a passion for the person of Jesus. And these uh, celibate, same-sex attracted Christians who decided to pursue holy sexuality, and amazing theology of sexuality, singleness, and these, um, Rachel Gilson, born again this way, um, Christopher uh, Yuan, um, Wesley Hill, Washington still waiting, amazing treatments of the value of singleness and how we need to celebrate singles in our church, include them in our life together. Yeah. I, I love hearing you say that, Bill. And one of the passages that I've always been drawn to is when Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch on on the road um, yes. to Gaza, right? And and I love mm-hmm. it how 
the the eunuch is reading the scroll of Isaiah, and first he starts with questions about Jesus, but like an adjacent passage, quite maybe even on the same scroll section, is when Isaiah talks about how God offers to eunuchs who mm. keep the Sabbath a memorial greater than children. And I, yes. I I can't help I can't help but wonder if the if the eunuch had been reading that pace, that part of the scroll of the passage the same day or maybe the next day and felt affirmed and encouraged and valued because I think that in our culture it's very hard for us to imagine people being fully fulfilled outside of a life that includes a marriage and two kids and a dog and a white picket fence. But yeah, but yeah. Jesus and the gospel say whatever, again, Jesus even says whatever, whatever lack there is in our lives that has been created out of adherence to the gospel mm-hmm. will be more, more than fulfilled in God's goodness and kindness and abundance. Am I reading that right? No. Yeah, you sure are. Paul, I think uh, David Bennett was captured by the first Corinthians six, uh, 14, 15 area where uh, he, he just realizes that our, our bodies and soul, we're a body-soul duality. They're going to be raised. Our whole, our whole objective in life is to yeah, glorify God, but please the Lord and want to live in a relationship that pleases him. And, and, it's, and it's a very serious relationship, but also it's a wonderful relationship and a one where our sins draw, of the faithful, draw the Lord closer to us, like Dana Ortland talks about in Gentle and Lowly. That's great. Bill, I love how you talked about how you've just had both the commitment to the integrity of the of the text, but also your own kind of personal humility and curiosity that has allowed you to hold some of your views loosely. You, you already acknowledged that the position mm-hmm. that you hold now yeah. on divorce and remarriage is different than the one that you started with a few decades ago. You also mentioned that that you've you've had kind of like a parallel journey when it comes to the, the sign gifts or maybe some of the more, uh, you know, to generalize, we'd call them charismatic expressions of an interpretation yes, yes. of Corinthians. Talk a little bit about about that journey and how you landed where, where you are today. Yeah, in 1993, uh, Professor Larry Hillier, uh, you would remember him, I think, Yeah, uh, came into my office and he said, hey, a bombshell book just came out by Zondervan. It was just updated two years ago, 25 years, and it was by my Hebrew professor, Jack Deere, surprised yeah. by the power of the spirit. I was an ardent cessationist. I used to play uh, TV preachers, a tongue speech in my classroom in Biblical briefly when we covered 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and show how it was a two-syllable thing. It had to be fake, couldn't be real, and so on. And Jack Deere writes this book. He ha- was asked to leave Dallas because of it. After reading that book, uh, it took me 12 to 14 years to sit on the fence and evaluate both sides. Mm-hmm. Finally, it was my um, son's third year, Taylor, my number three son, James, third year at Taylor, and uh, he was meeting with guys on Wengets, the third wedding, midnight during J-term, and they were getting real with each, each other, reading John Lynch's True Face, this book. And uh, all of a sudden, he, he came home and asked me, what's the Holy Spirit? Brought a friend of his. It was a Wheaton Academy guy. He had never understood what the Holy Spirit was. So I shared him the, the bird booklet, the Campus Crusades Holy Spirit booklet. And... Um, he had no idea who the Holy Spirit was. I thought he would have caught it from me and my family by osmosis. I trained Staler students. I, I trained, I led Bible studies at Taylor. The next couple of uh, years, he poured through the scripture. One month later, we had a spiritual renewal week. He came home literally weeping over his sins, started reading the Bible three to five hours a day, and immediately started knowing the secrets of other people's lives. And I had read about this in Deer. 
he would shake guys' hands on Wingates, and, and he would know something about them. He said they would say, "Heth, you are weird. How did you know that?" So I saw my son undoubtedly moving in the miraculous gifts of the spirits. And I realized I needed, finally, after two years of further research, gathering stories, taking notes like crazy uh, during prophetic ministry, and verifying that there had to be revelatory stuff going on. Um, my son said to me, Dad, you're never going to grow in your faith as long as you uh, are have that fear of man. I wanted to be right in the middle. I wanted to be right in the middle. And when we saw my wife's carpal tunnel healed by a simple laying on of hands, we paid $6,000 for the other wrist, Taylor's insurance, uh, to, to, to be surgically helped. Uh, that, that was started. Once you, once you see one and you read all these other stories, um, you know that uh, God is still working in the exact same way today as he was in the first century and in the book of Acts. Bill, I, I again, I, I love the fact that because in some ways, in, in in the circles in which you were kind of deputized for for academic credibility, there oh was a lot, there was a lot to lose. Oh, there was as there was for Jack Deere and Sam Storms. <laughs> and say, do you know about Sam Storms? Yeah, yeah, I had yeah, an opportunity, to, right, right, to to work on one of Sam's books, but cool. So, Bill, how do you how what what word of encouragement do you have to say to parents who are afraid of their kids maybe jumping the rails as they perceive their spiritual journey? Like how like if they're like, wow, my kid's exploring a, an idea or a doctrine or practice that is new to me or is maybe outside of our church tradition and it makes me a little bit nervous. What what do you say to, to parents or grandparents whose first instinct is to is to tense up and lock down and pull back? What what's your encouragement to them? Oh, my encouragement to them is to keep on talking, uh, to listen to them, uh, look at the text, look at the passages with them. I've given an assignment since 2003 uh, where students uh, look at uh, 10 or 15 cessationist verse, 10 or 15 uh, continuationist verses. And I have hundreds, actually over thousands of papers written on this topic. And I tell them they cannot use their experiences. You have to make an argument from the text. And I found that um, at least five of those students who had never heard of this debate, they saw so clearly that prophecy had not died out in the first century. Another vast majority who were cessationists, they looked at it and they said, I was taught this in my church, but that's not what I see in scripture. So I tell people just to go to scripture, uh, go scripture, take a look at it. <laughs> and so I, I have to be careful with parents. I say, let and I had one dad call and, and call me on the carpet that I was giving these assignments and trying to push my views. No, I wasn't. They were making their own decisions. They saw, I gave them both sets of passages. And, um, but that was only one, you know, in 36 years. And so I would wow. say, hey, listen to them. If, if they have a scholarly book like Jack here, we don't go off into crazy stuff like Benny Hinn. We don't do that. But all these Dallas grads that, that I've learned from, J.P. Moreland and the uh, Klaus Isler and, and Sam Storms and, and Jack Deere, uh, they were all Dallas grads and they're all third wave of the spirit now. Wow. All the gifts, all, wow. all third wave of the spirit guys. Bill, at the, at the risk of sounding overly simplistic or generalizing, because I'm not, I'm not saying that people are who are cessationists don't love the Lord or aren't trying oh, hard to do their homework or that they're not operating with integrity. But many times my, what I have observed is there's just, a, there's a lot of fear there. <laughs> there's, there's a temptation towards, fear and control and yes. that if we if if we can get to decide all of the guidelines we'll keep everybody in line but but the truth is 
no matter what doctrine we use, we can't control people anyway, right? Yeah. Um, uh, white type A male pastors, uh, they want to be in control. Shepherds should be concerned about guiding their flock and right. be concerned about error. No question. But when you have these amazing um, people like uh, Wayne Grudem and, and John Piper all, also believing in all of the gifts, and then John MacArthur, for example, a wonderful Bible teacher, but holds a conference, a strange fire, yeah. and only gives an exception to, to uh, Piper and, and Grudem as genuine Christian because they're Calvinists like he is. Uh, but they don't agree with his stance on, on the gifts. And a wonderful guy, Rich Nathan, wrote a 26-page paper, his former professor of business law at Ohio State University. And um, and then uh, just retired as the pastor of the Columbus 8,000 member Columbus Vineyard. I got to visit there once. Yeah. Most racially diverse church I've been in. Um, he he wrote an amazing paper uh, critiquing a couple of uh, MacArthur's books on um, uh, the charismatic chaos. And so so well done. I mean, he was a lawyer, so judicially. But MacArthur picked all the worst examples possible to uh, lambast uh, anything charismatic. And it was that was sad, very sad. So, Bill, for you, how how do you discern like what the two two ends of the spectrum are? Like, how do you make sure that you're going forward with openness but not mm -hmm. naivete? Like, how do you how do you marry curiosity and discernment and and hold those both uh, firmly at at the same times? Just just so that we don't veer into error. Yes, yes. Well, I, I do keep reading and things that that come out. I want to see critiques. I want to see them. Uh, where where I'm at is. Uh, I think I was really fearful of not being able to dot every I and cross every T with uh, an accurate exegesis of the, using the biblical languages. And when I saw that the Holy Spirit was still healing, was still speaking, that the Holy Spirit guided the early church in Acts chapter one with a couple of passages from the Psalms uh, to replace um, uh, Judas with Matthias as, as the 12th um, apostle in the number. And I looked at those passages in those texts are general principles. They did not predict that this was going to change. I asked myself, what is going on here? Then I realized that parallels the experiences I've been having with these small groups of students and other places that, uh, and, and I found other Taylor grads who went, I thought the group that I was a part of back in 2009 was the first group to do this. No, there's a bunch of Taylor grads that had these same experiences. And so I realized, oh, my word, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give up inerrancy in any way and the importance of Scripture. But guess what? God can speak personally. And I found that virtually every, um, almost every prophetic uh, word uh, recorded in Scriptures, there's such a variety of prophetic forms. Virtually none of them have to do with doctrine. It's famine's coming. Let me encourage you. Uh, go to this place in Macedonia. Guidance. Nothing. You can't judge them doctrinally, right? But for the most part, they don't have anything to do with doctrine. That's great. The la whole, last question. I have a whole list. Yeah. Sure. Last question for people who might be new to that uh, scene, new to that whole idea in space. What is your encouragement to them about how to how to test the spirits? If somebody comes to them with a word of knowledge or a word of yeah. prophecy. And maybe maybe they're new and they're easily intimidated and and something somebody speaks authoritatively to them, but they still don't feel like settled in their gut. What what is a grid that you would use to encourage them to to kind of check messages that others claim yeah. to be coming from the Lord? Yeah, my, my, my first thought, 
that popped in my head was by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I remember when my daughter experienced her first um, prophetic word. And there are some personality types. We really have to guide them. We have to shepherd them correctly. And they're, they're thinking that God is, is speaking uh, every second. And Dallas Willard's uh, Hearing God, Developing a conversation, uh, Relationship with God is a wonderful book uh, to counter that. My daughter hears a prophetic word. It landed. It was accurately. She goes home to do her Bible study for the next day. It's on that same topic. She goes to her inductive Bible study class the next morning at Taylor. And the professor veers off on a tangent, touches on that same thing that she heard. There's three right there. I said, Julie, um, there is uh, there's something uh, going on here. And she realized it, too. So there will be, you just don't take one word for it. So I have a, a general a maximum, uh, test it. Yeah, th th I, you, you just knew the secret of my life. Number two, that might be right on. Uh, third one, no, false prophet. <laughs> okay. And so, so you test them. Gotcha. Yeah, what, what fruit are they bearing? Uh, yeah, in, if in a person's life. If there was one or two books or resources that you would recommend people who are kind of curious about uh kind of continuationism what what would you encourage them to look at yeah sam storms has the little red uh, paperback um uh, introducing the gifts of the spirit little red paperback and that's a helpful one uh, then he then he just he, and he sent me a copy of it the mammoth one understanding spiritual gifts and that covers absolutely everything understanding spiritual gifts but that's a huge read his beginner's guide it's called the beginner's guide to spiritual gifts sam storms Okay. Is the much smaller version of that. So that would be one. I've had my students for the past uh, yeah, 20 years read Jack Deere, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. I've had cessationists and non-charismatics tell me, Dr. Hath, did you change anything in your class? Do not change making students read that book because it goes way beyond the gifts. It's about hermeneutics. It's about life and spirit. The last three chapters about developing a passion for the person of Jesus. And that's what the students latch on to most. So uh, Jack Deere is kind of the the, the gateway drug book <laughs> okay. into into that. Get Jack Deere, and then there are so many other good ones um, out there now uh, as well. Jack has uh, you know surprised by the voice of God. Though I hear there's a class at Dallas that that critiques it, and tries to take that book apart. And so there's some people whose minds you're just not going to change. Yeah, and they're invested. Uh, their life is invested in it, and they've taught this way all their lives. Uh, I had that choice to make when I changed my view in divorce and remarriage. And uh, I'll, was I going to lose all credibility? No, nope, I didn't. I saw that the community of faith was not buying into the arguments that Gordon Wenham and I wrote about in Jesus and divorce. And so I needed to take a second look. That's great. Thanks. Thank you for your humility and your curiosity and your flexibility. Uh, I, I remember the, the year that I graduated, Taylor, Bill, was 1995, where there okay. was this kind of fresh wind of the spirit that was coming through multiple layers of campuses. And that, mm. that happened at Taylor in the April of 95. And you, you made it sound like your journey started in 93. So what was when you... When you heard about students, you know, going to twelve-hour chapels and, and missing classes so they could repent, what was what was your view? What were you thinking about all that? Yeah. When it was, yeah, when it 90, was surfacing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ninety-three was where I became open but cautious, which yeah. is actually un unbiblical. Uh, Paul says, "Eagerly desire the greater gifts." So you you seek the gifts, but never in spite of the giver. Um, so it wasn't until really around two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Okay. That I really uh, turned on uh, to those things and 
Um, but I was around during the 95 revival. One of my former Greek students just I did his master's thesis on a couple of years ago. We had a couple of others, I think, in the early 2000s. Okay. But uh, I was out there walking with one of those groups, Kyle Martin, who has the Revive America, Revive Indiana, another Dallas grad who is uh, totally on fire for the Lord and a continuationist. I would go out with his group. We would walk the loop and pray where the Memorial Prayer Chapel is now built. Yeah. Um, as they did. And so I, I saw some mistakes that some of the ones in there made. I have emails where I sent to them. I said, hey, you, you, you're doing the wrong thing here. This is not good. You're going to lose your credibility. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I appreciate your just desire to have all that, to, to lean into all that God wants, just not for you and your family, but for uh, the family mm -hmm. of faith and the church at large. So thank you for the contributions that you've made so faithfully right. to me and to uh, the community that you've reached through your writing, your research, your scholarship, and, and your teaching. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been a privilege. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.